Hello and welcome to Behind the Drive, the podcast for girls and guys who love Formula One. I'm your host, Courtney Ross, and I am here for you every week to bring you fun and educational content while hopefully making some new F1 friends along the way. So if you love all things formula, then I highly recommend you hit the follow button to join the community and get notified every time a new episode comes out. Oh, clickety click 66. I don't know if anyone just heard that. My shoulder just decided to give way. Anyway, hello guys. I hope you are all doing well. And if you're listening from somewhere in Australia, I hope you are staying safe in these crappy times Um, not only is most of the country in harsh lockdowns but we are also only halfway through the formula one summer break but anyway in today's episode i'm kicking off my team series and as the name suggests each month i will be picking a new team to discuss and running through how they formed their history important moments and covering other little nuggets of information that are both interesting and hopefully teaches you something new so when i was deciding which team to start with i was really tossing up between two williams racing and Haas. And the main reason for this was because these two teams have had, let's say, very mediocre results over the last five years. And it really made me think, why is that? How did these teams get to this point? So I decided to go with Williams, which I'm sure you realize by the title of this episode. (laughs) But I chose them because they are a team that have been on a bit of a roller coaster in terms of their achievements. They've had some fantastic years and then they've had some very poor ones as well. And along the way, they've been caught up in drama, controversy, and sadly, tragedy. So let's jump into the colorful history of Williams Racing. As of this year, 2021, There have been over 140 different Formula One constructors that have entered a Grand Prix event since 1950. That is how many have had a crack at designing and entering a car into a Formula One championship. Some of them stuck around for many years and achieved great success, while others exited the sport as quickly as they entered after they realized how expensive and hard it is to create a championship winning car and team. Now, I should probably take a step back because the terms team and constructor refer to different things. So let's quickly clear that up. A team refers to a person or a group of people who enter a Grand Prix. A constructor, on the other hand, is someone who builds a car's chassis or engine. So in the past, and currently actually, there have been teams who have entered a car in the race using another team's engine, I can't even say engine, engine or (laughs) chassis, there we go, oh Christ, we're pressing on. For example, (laughs) McLaren, their cars are a McLaren Mercedes as they use a Mercedes engine. Or Red Bull. Their car is known as Red Bull Racing Honda as they use a Honda engine. For now, anyway. But I have digressed from the main topic. (laughs) In Formula One today, we have 10 constructors who have all had a different journey through F1. 
They have all had their ups and downs, their wins and their challenges, and William's racing is no exception to this. To understand how Williams has fallen down to the back of the grid where it is today, we need to go back a few generations and talk about where it all started. Frank Williams is a well-known name within Formula One and motorsport in general for the success of his team known as Williams Racing. But his career stems from much further back in time. Frank's interest in fast cars developed in the late 1950s when he was a teenager. After a brief career as a driver and a mechanic, he formed Frank Williams Racing Cars in 1966. And what was he doing with these racing cars, do you ask? He was entering them in Formula 2 and Formula 3 championships for several years. He then purchased a Brabham Formula 1 chassis, which, if you aren't aware, was another F1 team of that time, and ran his friend Piers Courage as his driver in the 1969 Formula 1 season. And to be fair, the car actually did okay. Um, They managed to get two second place wins in the season in Monaco and the US. As we move into 1970, Frank briefly undertook a partnership with and I'm sorry if I butcher this name, Alejandro Di Tommaso, who was a racing car driver and businessman from Argentina. This joint partnership would provide Frank Williams with a chassis for the new season. Unfortunately, 1970 wasn't the best year for Frank Williams. The new chassis was mm, not great. Um, The car failed to finish in the first four races of the season. And then in the fifth race of the season, Frank's driver and longtime friend Piers Courage had an accident at the Dutch Grand Prix, tragically ending his life. And unfortunately, there's footage of it, and it was horrendous. It was a terrible crash, and it was apparently caused by either a suspension or a steering failure. The end of the 1970 season saw Williams and Di Tommaso go their separate ways, which left Frank Williams in a bit of a pickle trying to source a new chassis. Ultimately, the team purchased a year-old March 711, and for those who don't know, March was another constructor of that time, and they had Frenchman Pescarolo driving for them in 1971. Again, the team didn't really see the results they were hoping for and Frank Williams, low on funds and unsure of what to do for the 1972 season. Luckily for the team, a French oil company came on board with financial backing as well as an Italian toy manufacturer which helped fund a new in-house built chassis. The new car was debuted at the British GP, however Pescarolo had a crash after the steering failed which resulted in heavy damage to the car. It was practically totaled. And just a quick side note as I'm rereading all my notes and, and talking through this, this team had three different crashes that were due to their steering column fa- failing, like Piers Courage, this one here at the British GP with Pescarolo and then Aiton Senna. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm just thinking too much into it, but I'm like, three? Three times? Like, anyway, back to the story. So they then went on to have a few mediocre seasons and had trouble holding sponsors for financial backing. 
Their results were less than impressive. Um, they were suffering mechanical issues, having to retire their car every couple of races, and they had a bit of a revolving door with lots of drivers having a crack at their car. So then we jump ahead to 1976, where Canadian oil millionaire Walter Wolf bought 60% of the Frank Williams Racing Cars Company and renamed it to Wolf Williams Racing. Frank was still involved with the business though, and he held the title of team manager. Until 1977, when he left to establish a new company, Williams Grand Prix Engineering, and he started this company with a man named Patrick Head. Now, Patrick, he came with a bit of a portfolio of experience. Not the most successful experience, but a thorough knowledge, we'll say. And to Frank, he would be a great asset in helping his new team become the success that he wanted so much. So after Frank's first unsuccessful attempt of a Formula One team, the new team were working hard to make an impact. It took a few years, but with significant financial backing from Saudi Airlines, the team released their first car, the FW06, which had been designed by Patrick Head. And thankfully from here, they finally started to see some momentum in their results. The team's first win came in 1979 with an amazing drive from Clay Regazzoni at the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, before Aussie Alan Jones went on to achieve four wins and a third place finish in the Drivers' Championship. The team also finished second in the Constructors' Championship behind the then-dominant Ferrari team. The team had reached the peak of their success to date and weren't far off achieving their first Constructors' Championship title. This brings us up to 1980, where the team was working as hard as ever to try and take the two championship titles. And with blood, sweat and tears, they achieved it. Alan Jones managed to beat Nelson Piquet by 13 points and he had wins in Canada, France, Britain and Argentina. And their solid performance over the season led them to win the Constructors' title by 54 points, which was seen as a massive achievement. With this new success, the Williams car was looked at as class leading and secured them as a front runner in the sport. In the 80s, the team created a lot of revolutionary concepts and designs, including the six-wheeled car. <laughs> if you haven't seen these retro cars, I highly recommend you Google them. <laughs> I mean, why have four wheels when you can have six, right? <laughs> The concept did hold some value though, because it actually reduced drag on the cars, but the development of the six-wheel machine was quickly squashed by the FIA, who amended the rulebook to ban cars with more than four wheels. In the back half of the 80s, their achievements kept stacking up, with the team claiming the Constructors' title in 1986, and both the Constructors' and Drivers' title with Nelson Piquet in 1987. And this made them a very desirable team for a lot of drivers on the grid at that time. Their cars were innovative, they were fast, and they had a track record of being a top performing team and winning. In 1990, the team hired Adrian Newey, whose name you might have heard of as he is the current Chief Technical Officer of the Red Bull team. Up until 1990, he had worked with a few other F1 teams and had some good success. His first F1 car design was a lot more competitive than expected and it even briefly passed Alan Prost's turboed McLaren at the Japanese GP. 
So his talent was something that Frank Williams wanted and needed on his team to continue growing. With Patrick Head and Adrian Newey working together in the 1990s, they achieved a level of dominance in the sport that hadn't been seen before. Between 1991 and 1997, Williams achieved 59 race wins. They won five constructor titles and four different drivers won world championships with them. They were the team to beat. The success they saw in the 90s also came with tragedy with the horrible weekend at the San Marino GP in 1994, where the team lost their driver and three-time world champion Aiton Senna in a terrible crash, which we discussed in last episode. This horrible event caused a lot of controversy with the team for many years as evidence regarding the crash was dribbling out in the media over time. And the controversy was mainly around who was responsible for Senna's crash. Was it a driver error or a technical failure that led to his death? Now, Italian authorities released the results of Senna's autopsy and revealed that he had died instantaneously during the race at Imola. This was particularly controversial because at the time there was an Italian law that stated that any collision resulting in a fatality must be investigated for any criminal culpability. Essentially, if he died instantly on the track, then the event should have been suspended and the scene of the crash should have been secured. Now, to this day, the FIA supposedly still maintains that he passed away later in hospital. But a lot of people think that they stuck by this statement because it suited the commercial interest of the organisation. In saying all of this, the Williams team were entangled in lawsuits for many years in the Italian court system after key team members including Frank Williams, Patrick Head and Adrian Newey were charged with manslaughter. In 1997, Frank Williams and five others were acquitted of the charges. However, this wasn't the end of it though. The team continued to be caught up in appeals and the case reopening. However, in 2005, Adrian Newey was fully acquitted. But Patrick Head, on the other hand, was not let off that easy. A retrial was ordered by Italy's highest court in 2005. And they delivered the verdict that Senna's death was definitely caused by a steering column failure. And who was ultimately responsible for this? Patrick Head. Luckily for Patrick, since the Italian statute of limitations for culpable homicide was seven years and six months, and the verdict was pronounced 13 years after the crash, he wasn't arrested or charged. Now there are heaps of other theories and hypotheses as to how and why Senna crashed, which I'd love to keep diving into, but this is a Williams episode and not a Senna episode, so I'll save that for another day and get back on track. It's worth noting that while all of this was happening, the Williams team were charging ahead and still on an upward trajectory with their success, which a lot of people put down to Adrian Newey's technical mind and innovative designs. On the surface, the team appeared to be running smoothly. They were successful, they were winning races and championships, but behind closed doors, Adrian was preparing to leave the team after he had been excluded from key decisions that he contractually should have been involved with. 
And Adrian looked extremely desirable for many teams and ultimately was snapped up by McLaren, joining them in August 1997. In 1998 and 1999, his cars and McLaren won back-to-back world championships while Williams failed to win a race. So he was probably like, yeah, how do you like them apples? Like, (laughs) you know, he left the team and then just pressed on and managed to get two world championships while Williams were just sort of, I don't know, not doing much at all. And for me and many other fans, I'm sure would agree, Adrian Newey leaving Williams was probably the first mistake that Williams made that started the downfall of the team's success in F1. With Renault withdrawing from F1, the year 2000 saw the team change engine suppliers to BMW, and there was huge potential for Williams to reclaim their spot as a front-running team. The car had a really powerful engine, but the car's chassis design and aerodynamics just didn't develop and evolve at the rate of the other teams, which many people put down to the departure of Adrian Newey from their team. In 2004, Patrick Head, who was getting on in age at that point, moved to the position of Director of Engineering, and we saw his successor, Sam Michael, become Technical Director. Patrick had been crucial in William's success to date, and with his departure, the team's performance continued to decline over the years to come. From 2005 to 2014, the team changed engine suppliers five times, which again hindered their performance. Stability is crucial with any F1 team, and within this nine-year period, Williams had used engines from Cosworth, Toyota, then back to Cosworth again, Renault, and then Mercedes, which is who they are still with to this day. Now, they jumped around a lot in suppliers for a few reasons, in my opinion. Firstly, money. And if you've seen Drive to Survive on Netflix, there is an episode called Cash is King, and this is so true. If you don't have money, you're practically up shit creek without a paddle. The sport will literally take whatever money you have, chew you up, and spit you back out. And for Williams, as a private company that had Frank owning 70% of the business and Patrick Head owning 30, money was starting to be a bit of a concern for the team. The other reason why they were jumping around in engine suppliers was because they were chasing their tail trying to build a car that had the best available engine in it. And this period from 2005 to 2014 for Williams was probably some of their worst years. In 2006, for example, Mark Webber, who was driving for them at the time, retired his car 11 times. 11 out of 18. He only had a full run for seven races that season. The team improved slightly, but for the nine-year period, they were on average finishing 8th or ninth in the Constructors' Championship. Now, as we approached into the more recent years, Williams kept sliding down the grid, and that was thanks to a combination of a few things. They lacked the development and innovation with the technical side of their cars, with things like aerodynamics, and they also had financial shortcomings. So when we get to 2017, Williams receive a tasty proposition. And this proposition was serious financial backing from a man with a lot of cash 
who also happened to have a son who liked to drive fast cars. And who is this, you ask? None other than Lawrence Stroll. Williams being in the difficult position that they were in, decided to take the offer from Lawrence. However, in doing so also meant that his son Lance Stroll would be guaranteed a seat at their team. This wasn't the first paid driver that Williams had brought on board, however they received a lot of criticism for the decision. They had been against taking on paid drivers in the past, however the team wasn't in a strong enough position financially to say no to the opportunity. Now, Lawrence Stroll was very keen to acquire a stake in the team, but Frank Williams was very resistant to this. Sound familiar? Hmm? Remember when we were chatting about Adrian Newey before? Well, it was a very similar situation with him. The rejection from Williams soured the relationship between the two and Lawrence wasn't happy. He was pissed. Well, I don't know, I'm just guessing. But as soon as the Force India team was put into administration, he took some more pocket money out of his bank and purchased the team, taking Lance with him. With the amount of money, enthusiasm and interest that Lawrence Stroll had in F1, in my opinion, this was a big missed opportunity for Williams that could have helped their team recover to their former glory. 2018 and 2019 were horrible seasons for the Williams team and probably their worst since becoming a constructor in Formula One. Their performance was a huge focus in the Drive to Survive series and unfortunately they only finished in the top 10 four times over the two seasons and finished 10th in the Constructors' Championship consecutively. Now this bad performance on track significantly impacted the team's financial situation. I mean it would for any team. I've spoken about this in a previous episode, but the prize money at the end of each season is divvied up between the teams based on their finishing position in the Constructors' Championship. So, in the case of Williams, they apparently saw an operating loss of, wait for it, £12.9 million in 2019, which was due to a combination of factors but included this poor performance on track. This obviously also had a knock-on effect for the following year and limited their development, resources, design, team structure, everything like that. So with this heavy loss in 2019, we saw Frank Williams sell his company to a private investment firm in the US in 2020, a company that he had founded and owned 43 years. Although the deal meant the end of an era for Williams being a family-owned team, it gave them a chance of taking a new path to success. The team also didn't manage to achieve any points for the 2020 season. Russell and Latifi did get close a few times, but they did finish the season last in the Constructors' Championship. However, with the new owners and money being injected into the business, there is hope for the team. And we've seen some progress this year. I mean, they had a killer weekend in Hungary, <laughs> which actually pushed them above Alfa Romeo in the standings, but it's safe to say the team will not be doing any further major developments on their cars for this season. The strategy, like most of the other teams, will be to focus on the development for its car next year. So really, when we reflect on the rise of the Williams team, they really peaked in the 80s and early 90s. 
And their fall from success really started a lot sooner than most think. I mean, this is just my opinion, but I feel like the mid-90s, when Adrian Newey left the team, things started snowballing for them. With their struggles for money, Patrick Head stepping away from the team, instability with their engines, poorly designed and developed cars, and it all just caught up with them and led to them where they are today. Will they ever recover and become the success they once were? I don't know, I really don't. Needless to say, the team played a pivotal role in the development and growth in Formula One. And with the constant change we see in the sport, who knows, maybe they'll be back up there fighting for championships again at some point in the future. Okay guys, we have crossed the finish line for today's episode and I really appreciate you sticking around. I do hope you found some value in what we discussed, but if you have any suggestions on things that you would like me to cover in upcoming episodes, please inbox me on the Behind the Drive Instagram page and I'll be sure to look into it for you. In next week's episode, we are going to be talking about something that a friend of the podcast from TikTok suggested, which is all the team and driver rivalries that we have seen over the years. And trust me, there have been more than a few. Until the next episode, I hope you stay safe and happy and I'll chat to you all next week. Bye.